You're listening to the Powder 8 Podcast. Hello, thank you for tuning in. You're listening to the Powder 8 Podcast, the podcast for backcountry skiers. I'm your host, KT Miller. As always, I'm excited to share another episode with you. This is the last of a few episodes I had in the bank, so to speak, so I need to get out and gather some more. I'm hoping to get down to the Tetons to chat with some people there, but um, there's a lot of skiing to do at home right now, and those of you who like ski mountaineering know that the time is now. Uh, But I definitely plan to keep the podcast going and the stoke alive through this summer and try to hit it hard again come next winter. So please keep listening. Donate. Send me some feedback. I'd love to hear who you want to hear on the Powder 8 podcast. In today's episode, I chat with Drew Hardesty. Many of you may know Drew through his work as a forecaster with the Utah Avalanche Center, but Drew also spends his summers in the Tetons working as one of the famed Jenny Lake climbing rangers. And beyond the obvious, it's kind of hard to begin to describe Drew Hardesty. He's one of those people that you don't forget after you meet him. He has a big grizzled beard and sun-hardened eyes that hint to wisdom that can only be attained through a life lived in the mountains. In this episode, Drew and I chat about his thoughts on the future of avalanche forecasting, how backcountry ethics play into public safety, and two of his favorite haikus that relate to skiing in the backcountry. for sitting down, Drew. It's um, a pleasure and a treat to, to talk with you and share your story with folks. Um, so for our listeners, we've got Drew Hardesty here, and um, he is an avalanche foreca- forecaster with the Utah Avalanche Center. Um, so I'd love to start with a little bit about your background, um, you know, where you're from and how you kind of found mountains and ended up discovering backcountry skiing? Yeah, I th- KT, I think that the way that I I look back at this here is that one of my mentors in the mountains, Tom Kimbrough, he's uh, he's just shy of 80, and he lives in Salt Lake, and and uh, he was an avalanche forecaster here for for 20 years or so and then he was a, a Jenny Lake climbing ranger up in the Teton range for about 30 years and KT I remember his retirement party there in Lupin Meadows just nestled under Tewanot there in the range there it was late at night and people were up on on the hastily made stage of picnic tables and uh, more than one bottle of Jameson's was being handed around and and uh, one of his longtime friends gets up there on the stage and says, Kimbrough, you're retired from what? You haven't done an honest day's job in 30 years. <laughs> and I thought, you know, that's for me. 
that's great. So you're, uh, are you still a, a climbing ranger in the Tetons? Oh yeah, summer? it's uh, it's it's a good compliment to to head up to the Teton Range. I'm, I'll be up there uh, most seasons from uh, Memorial Day up to Labor Day, and and I could have a longer season, but I need time off in the in the spring and the fall. Yeah. 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 Interesting. I know this is a backcountry skiing podcast, but what are you mostly cli- like in your free time in the summer? Then are you cl- are climbing, running, kind of everything outside? Is there one kind of summer sport that draws you and pulls you? Well, you know, KT, it's interesting that the uh, the tradition that the climbing ranger tradition has really come about since uh, uh, you know way back in the 1900s and. And uh, the guys coming back from the war and, and bringing back, in fact, John Montaigne, a Bozeman guy and professor, he he uh, he was there and and bringing back a lot of the rescue skills from Europe and so forth. And so that tradition of of hiring mountain people, uh, climbers, and teaching them how to wear a government uniform that's that has been and will continue to be the tradition of of the Ginny Lake crew there. And so by and large, we are on the clock. You know, five days a week, and if there's not a rescue going on, we're in the ranger station handing out information one day a week, and the other three to four days, we're, we're in the mountain. So I think that, that tradition is such that when, when people come in to get a permit or information about different routes, um, and you're in the ranger station, you can say, oh, yeah, I was just there uh, a few days ago. And so you know the route, and you know the current conditions. And uh, maybe above all, you have maintained the fitness. You don't want a guy that's been sitting behind the desk, the desk to come and haul you out of the mountains. You want people that have been in the mountains and know the conditions and have that level of fitness. It's a good, it's a good team. It's a good group up there. A wonderful family of guides and and climbing rangers in the yeah. Teton Range. I actually think that you've given me a permit when I was down there, like, probably 17, 18 years old. <laughs> I have a faint memory of that. Um, really quick, could you just share a little bit about, like, where you're from um, and how you moved out west? Mm. KT, I was a poor kid that grew up in Kentucky. And, uh, you know, in high school, you have the, the heart-to-heart um, with your folks. And... And uh, for me to go on to to uh, to undergrad, I was going to have to get a scholarship. Now I had good grades, captain of the the soccer team, and you know those all American things going on. And so I threw my hat in the ring for a few different scholarships, and and uh, the best deals I saw it came from came from the Navy, and it was an ROTC scholarships. Uh, you may see these guys walking around the different universities around uh, the nation, but uh, it was a good deal. They, uh, they said I could go to any school that I could be accepted to, um, get my degree of my choosing, and then it was time to pay the piper, you know. So after you graduated from, from college, then you would receive a commission as an officer in the military and uh what um what i still don't understand is why they chose me for intelligence (laughs) (laughs) 
But in any event, that was in the first Gulf War, and so I was stationed, um, you know, as a naval officer. But but under the the uh, um, under the greater NSA CIA uh, umbrella for general intelligence in, in the, within the Gulf, and that took on various roles and so forth. I mean, for, for some months on end, I'd be briefing the three-star admiral in Bahrain there in the Persian Gulf. Other times I'd be with a, I'd cherry pick a team of guys that would work with me to go into Egypt or Jordan or um, into the um, different spots around the Middle East to um, fulfill our mission as it was back in the in the first Gulf War. But I knew it wasn't for me. I, I uh, again, my undergrad was in Boulder, Colorado, and uh, I, I, I really developed a love of backcountry skiing and climbing there. And so I, I remember this one time I was, I was on this ship. I was on the ship for a couple weeks, and it was like 3 in the morning, and there was, there was my roommate, another officer, another couple of guys, and there was 3 in the morning. He'd just getting, gotten off a shift. <laughs> and he said, are you crazy? Like you're giving up this like great career and good money and see the world and travel and so forth. And and I, <laughs> I he's like, and look at you, you're just you're reading some magazine that nobody's even heard of before. <laughs> it was Rock and Ice magazine. Awesome. <laughs> That's a great story. Now, I should say that, it, you know, it wasn't all, you know, um, the battlefield and, and so forth. I, my home unit was in northern Japan. It was up in the northern part of Honshu, all the volcanoes up there. And while, while most people these days are going to Hakuba and the Alps and so forth, I was stationed up up in the northern part in the Aomori province, which um, arguably gets as much or more snow than Mount Baker up in the northwest. And then I would I would take trips up to Hokkaido and just the convergence of the maritime climate and the cold fronts coming down the Sea of Japan from Russia. It's like snow I've never skied since. Uh, and it, I remember fondly the uh, all the the backcountry skiing in Japan, and now that was back in the in the early '90s, and I I uh, am anxious to return. <laughs> That's great. How many years did you do? Were you in the Navy? Mm, three years. Three. Okay. Yeah. 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 Uh, uh, I, what a way to to um, m- meet, for lack of a better word, Japan. <laughs> so cool. I wonder if that, do you think that Japan experience influenced just the culture there, I Mm. guess, like the mindfulness Mm. culture? I've never been, but um, Mm. I don't, I'm just curious, the the kind of poetry and art and, I don't know. Seems like an interesting culture. My two favorite haiku. The first, of course, Basho, you know, he, uh, for some reason he uh, 
it's um Basho traveled his is probably his most famous book is called Journey to the Interior and uh, for those of us in the avalanche world this one this one uh, hits close come let's go snow watching till we're buried <laughs> the other one the other one I like is the honeybee staggers out of the peony <laughs> <laughs> they sort of go hand in hand <laughs> that's great you know, my undergrad was in Boulder, and uh, that it was quite clear early on that uh, I could see the handwriting on the wall, the skiing lifestyle, the paddling, the trail running, the climbing, the ice climbing. It was all there, and I, I uh, wondered how one might make a life out of that sort of thing. And there's, there's remarkably few ways in which to make a life uh, in that way, and increasingly these days, uh, more people can through um, sponsorships and or being an ambassador and so forth. But but uh, it's hard to do into your fifties and sixties, and and the government, at least for me anyway, was, was one way to to um, ski and climb and and have the government pay for it. And I think it's a it's a pretty good deal. I've, I've I guess I feel like in return for that dime, um, public safety has been central and fundamental to how that shaped my view and what I've felt like I've given back um, to the communities over these last uh, few decades. So, I mean, I guess we touched on it a little bit with your your mentor and and that celebration in the Tetons. but is there, could you describe your story of coming specifically to avalanche forecasting? You know, I found early on, uh, KT, that it's, it was, as I just have described it before, it, it was something like finding your soulmate or just a, your girlfriend or the person you're going to spend the rest of your life with were were and just getting into the snow world it was like ah so there you are (laughs) and it was always more than just the skiing or the skiing conditions but it was everything from just looking at each individual snowflake or crystal under the lens to you know, watching the snow come in September, October, November, and just following the state of the snowpack. It's sort of like having a child, and <laughs> and in the spring when it all melts away, it's like they've gone off to, to college or something. But it's just this intimacy that you have with the snowpack each winter um, that uh, is just irreplaceable. I mean, it's a, it's just uh, it's just a wonderful it's a wonderful thing. Mm-hmm. Um. I really like that. I I found myself increasingly not wanting to leave where my home base is because I feel disconnected from the snowpack and just being in it throughout the season constantly. Um, you, it just it does have that more intimate feel. You feel like you have a better grasp of what's going on and and um, yeah. So. Let's see. Maybe, um, maybe we could start by sharing possibly some lessons 
that you've learned over the years? I know you see a lot being a forecaster here um, in Utah, um, based in Salt Lake City. Um, and I know you've also been out personally lots. So I don't know if there's any specific lessons that stick out that you think other people might be able to, to learn from. Mm. Well, I think there are many lessons out there, and I have learned many, and I am sure that I will continue to learn um, more from the snow. The snow in the mountains um, have taught me a great deal. I think that we all, after spending uh, years in the snowpack, will make mistakes. I think one of the key things is not making the same mistake. Um, complacency, I think, can, can be very problematic for people to get into the into the snow and avalanche world, but uh, that'll bite you. And I, I find that with so many things distracting us in the mountains, increasingly so, and perhaps uh, in, in the Salt Lake Mountains where everything's uh, just with, on your phone and the sheer numbers of people, but distraction um, can be really problematic. You have to approach the mountains with, above all, humility, but secondarily a, a certain mindfulness to be open to that uh, beginner's mind to be aware of that things uh, may not be as as you might have expected them to be so that beginner's mind that that approach i think is fundamental to to uh, any outing in the mountains mm -hmm. it's great to hear you say that uh, how many years would you say you've been backcountry skiing I've been skiing in the backcountry, uh, uh, getting on towards maybe 25 years, and uh, started, I remember it was called Oatmeal Bowl. This is up at Berthoud Pass. <laughs> <laughs> and I was uh, uh, in my late teens and had... A pair of Oslo Extreme leather Telemark boots and <laughs> Riva cables and two fifteen long double cambered skinny skis and and uh, uh, yeah, <laughs> it'd be hard to say love at first sight as you're tomahawking down the hill with your two fifteen <laughs> skis, <laughs> but but uh, uh, the event, like I said, it's not about the skiing per se. Uh, but uh, it's been a lifelong affair, KTs, mm -hmm. as, as uh, I'm, I'm sure you're well aware of as well. Yeah, I. Yeah, I just that's I, I love the beginner's mind when you've been at it for 25 years. I think that's a really neat um, uh, just thought to to carry to carry with you. Um, so let's talk a little bit about avalanche forecasting kind of as a as a science as a profession and and if you could comment maybe on how far it's come and perhaps where you see it going in the future mm, yeah it's things in many ways have changed a great deal um, in many ways they have not uh, Monty Atwater's uh, 10 contributory factors of avalanche formation that he wrote over 50 years ago um, remained true in that regard. And his uh, his partner, Ed LaChapelle, uh, I mean, these are 
These are some of the pioneers of, of avalanche forecasting in the 40s and 50s here in Little Cottonwood Canyon. I mean, it's the birthplace of avalanche forecasting in, in North America. Um, and you know, Ed LaChapelle, uh, they were a good complement, those two. Atwater was the, was the tough, grizzled veteran from the war, bringing artillery into the game for knocking the avalanches down. Now, LaChapelle was the scientist, the Ph.D. glaciology, and, and they complemented each other quite well. Now, LaChapelle, not long before he died, I should, now I should mention how he died, of cardiac arrest. He had a heart attack skiing powder. Really? In Colorado, uh, I guess about eh, six, seven, eight years ago. Wow. And we should all be so lucky. But LaChapelle wrote a... Nice essay for Lynn Wolf, um, the editor of the Avalanche Review. It's called The Ascending Spiral, how he sees the same topics of, of fracture mechanics and human factor and decision making, just like this helix of ascending these same topics over and over and over, becoming more elegant and thoughtful uh, as the years continue. And I suspect that 30 years down the road we'll still be on that same ascending spiral path of avalanche forecasting. Wow. <laughs> I have admired Dolores LaChapelle. Ah, uh, yes. For, for a while now, and she got really into deep ecology and writing books, and I just, being that we were talking about Ed, I thought I would mention a book that she wrote, which is a very small book called Deep Powder Snow, and it really dives into kind of the... I mean, a lot of us, I think, try to explain why we love backcountry skiing or what it is. And she talks a lot about kind of the, the ultimate freedom of kind of surrendering to gravity that comes with snow. And I, for anyone who's sort of scratched their head and wondered why on earth, you know, I would recommend that book. Um, and you and I were talking before we started recording. One of these days I'll learn to just turn the recorder on right away. Um, a little bit about books and about reading, and um, maybe you could share either, you know, a book that's influenced your backcountry skiing, or we could even talk a little bit about what we just did about, um, you know, writing and, uh, and reading and how that, I'm trying to phrase this well, um, but just reading, all sorts of literature with regard to skiing, mm. with regard to just kind of ethics, how to live your life can can make you a more aware, better mm. decision maker in the backcountry. KT, that's that's a wonderful <laughs> that's a wonderful question. Uh, I mean, I have drawn upon uh, a, a great number of books in my own. For my own forecasting and storytelling and and so forth, and remarkably few mentioned snow at all in the books. And in this wonderful life that we share here, it's not so much about the medium. And I, in that way, I look at some of our heroes, Norman McLean, you know, the great rider and fly fisherman, dry fly fisherman up in the uh, Montana wilderness, writing about just the life and lessons that we learn when we're out in these 
wild areas with a fly rod in hand. Uh, Antoine de Saint-Exupéry, often misunderstood and mistaken as a children's author. Most people um, imagine him to be uh, just the children's author, The Little Prince, even though that may have sold the most. But he was, a, he was an aviator by trade and uh, flew the mail routes in, in Africa and South America. And his beautiful, um, beautiful collection of essays and stories called Wind, Sand, and Stars uh, just tell so many beautiful stories and anecdotes of, uh, of him flying the, the wilderness of the stars you know, through Africa and, and South America. <laughs> uh, fundamental as well would be Herman Melville, uh, the, uh, talking about searching for the, the great white whale. And I will often use a, a sketch of uh, Ahab once they're in the whaling boats going after the white whale, uh, one of the great all-time pieces of literature uh, in North America. And those are just a few to, to start out with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, we had talked about ethics with backcountry skiing, which is a, a difficult subject. It's often threading, threading a needle, trying to, you know, say or not say what is and is not right because we all, you know, have our own perspectives on the world. Um, but I feel like you've drawn some really interesting conversations among the backcountry ski community about what are the ethics of backcountry and and what does that even mean and and why do they matter? Um, even with just simple things like here in, you know, the Wasatch and Little Cottonwood Canyon, not triggering avalanches onto the road and things like that, which, which I would say kind of fall into the ethics category. Um, so could you comment a little bit about ethics in the backcountry? I agree with you, KT, on this, that it's important to be able to thread the needle with promoting and, and developing a set of ethics and guidelines for backcountry skiing and riding and avalanche terrain. Now, I, many people have talked about uh, leave no trace as it applies to the winter environment, but I'm I'm here uh, ex- sort of exclusively interested in um, ethics in the backcountry as it applies to avalanche terrain. And in my view, I think it's sort of the highest form um, of a community to have and walk with a certain um, set of ethics. I think it just reflects back upon not just the individuals, but the community at large. And approaching that backcountry, the wilderness, that winter environment in, in avalanche terrain, as a view as as more of a privilege as opposed to a right. And in that way, to take people away from this mindset that it's all about me and it's all about what I'm going to get out of the backcountry and where you, again, approach like this highest form of of, of ethics is when people start to realize what they can do to give back to the backcountry and that backcountry community, and that's to be, you know to be a mentor to other people as they're starting to get into the backcountry to promote ideas of avalanche education and safety, but also to promote the, these ideas of ethics as we move through 
avalanche terrain because it's something that, in my view, is is uh, fundamentally a privilege. And this idea of the tragedy of the commons um, is upon us if we don't change our viewpoint of of how we travel in the backcountry. And to wit, uh, my argument stands that if we choose not to view um, the backcountry as a privilege, then we might suffer uh, such things as a backcountry permit system that they quote enjoy in the in the backcountry of uh, of um, in Canada up on Rogers Pass. So a permit system might be levied. Um, permanent closures for certain terrain that threatens the roads or other infrastructure, and then on a more personal level, this idea of negligent homicide of triggering avalanches down onto the road. Um, or other parties below. Um, these avalanches just this year alone, human triggered slides across the open Teton Pass, Red Mountain Pass. It's just the tipping point. These, these are the canaries in the coal mine here that may threaten the, the privileges that we have um, going forward over the next couple of decades. And I think that's increasingly important as we have more and more people getting out and enjoying the backcountry and the sport continues to grow. Um, thank you. I appreciate that. Um, wh what do you wish more people would think about or do before heading into the backcountry? Anything specifically? I guess I would say that along the lines of, you know, developing a culture of, of, of responsibility and backcountry ethics of this knowledge, awareness and wisdom, as I've put it, is just being aware of these things, this, these ideals um, to go hand in hand with, with uh, moving through avalanche terrain. So being aware of the, the avalanche conditions. Um, choosing appropriate terrain, safe travel pr protocol and procedures, and then get part and parcel of that would be um, incorporating the, these ethics and ideals as they head through the mountains. I didn't brief you on this, but I was, I was thinking, as you said, like learning to move through avalanche terrain and, um, and that sort of thing. And I, I personally have my own opinions, but I was wondering what you think like the the most challenging thing a beginner has to learn to move safely through avalanche terrain like is it terrain management is it reading slope angles is it identifying what is avalanche terrain like do you, is there something you think is kind of the most pivotal or most key to learn as as sort of a beginner um yeah that you know, I just I put this on the Avalanche Advisory last week. My good friend, um, Rip Griffith, long uh, retired Avalanche forecaster. I was visiting with him uh, back in the fall, and he he pulled this out of nowhere. He said that the snowpack uh, is that um, is that mercurial acquaintance that you'll never really know, while the terrain will always be your trusted friend. And 
it's it's true that that uh, even if you don't know anything at all about the snowpack, as long as you can recognize what is and what is not avalanche terrain, then you'll be safe. And that art of looking at the terrain, I think, is is uh, is a critical piece for starting off and uh, working into the mountains over the years. Uh, that terrain management is is really key and fundamental to staying alive in avalanche terrain. That's great. I That's something I've been personally really enjoying working on and, and watching is like, you know, 20 feet to the left, a turn could be an avalanche terrain, whereas two feet to the right, a turn could not be an avalanche terrain. And, and sometimes that differentiation is is subtle it's not blatantly obvious and and learning to really slow down and you know quiet the mind of all those other distractions and social media accounts and and all of that to to be able to focus and and look and really see not just see but really see you know the difference between a 32 degree slope and a 28 degree slope and how you know just a few feet could make that difference Um, and that's something I hope and wish and want my partners to be able to see as well (laughs) yeah that's the thing KT you really hit the nail on the head with that because the snow pack changes day-to-day, in some cases hour-to-hour, where the avalanche danger can spike here and then be more stable there, or it could spike today and be low danger tomorrow. And it's it's ever-changing, ever-temperamental, um, capricious. Uh, but the terrain is the one thing that does not change. That's the one constant. And that's the one thing that you choose is, is appropriate terrain to match the conditions. That's the art of it. <laughs> Um, what are you, what are you excited about right now, personally or professionally in the avalanche world? Like, well, like, what are you looking forward to? What, what, um, what, you know, gets you excited when you're thinking about the future? God, you know, in the old days, um, the knowledge of the avalanche conditions really was held in just, um, just with just a select few and predominantly that was at the ski areas you know with the ski areas and doing control work you know the 40s 50s and 60s and not many people heading into the backcountry and so forth i mean this there's a little bit of a power uh, shift here where in the last 20 years we'll say we've started to see more avalanche centers turning that upside down and really democratizing that avalanche information where it's a it's a two-way street we're getting all kinds of amazing uh, bits of avalanche snow weather and avalanche information from the backcountry community and we're able to take that and synthesize it and turn it right back out as a as a coherent um, clear-eyed avalanche forecast and so there's more of a two-way street going on where we're sharing that information to allow more and more people head out into the backcountry it's an amazing thing and 
you know, social media was invented for the avalanche world. <laughs> so, I mean, through Instagram and through like Twitter, I mean, it's God forbid I hardesty blows the forecast. You know, an hour later, I can tweet that out. Hey, folks, I blew it. The danger's considerable. The winds are starting to ramp up. And just by by getting photos and videos and snow profiles, I mean, it's. It's amazing. More and more people can feel like that they're part of developing their own Avalanche Forecast Center. It's an amazing thing. I know here at the Utah Avalanche Center, um, I've just observed that on Instagram, people are using a hashtag, WaObs, Wasatch Obs. Um, has that been successful? Like, how could you just quick like comment on that? You know, are you seeing a lot of things come in with that, and has that been working? We have seen all kinds of observations coming in and avalanche observations. And Instagram is just part of the part of the puzzle, part of the tool in the toolbox. Uh, we have an app that people are using to submit observations. There's a guy that that uh, uh, took a ride up in Cardiac Bowl just a couple of days ago, and he snapped a picture on the on our uh, um, Utah Avalanche Center app. But uh, you know, people tagging us with with photos or, or video for Instagram. It's, again, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's democratizing that process and sharing of information, and this stuff saves lives. Um, I, would, I would like to uh, uh, give a nod, in my view, to the community here in the Wasatch in particular, where there's less, um, you know, there's less Monday morning Quarterbacking. There's less backseat driving, and there's less uh, of a of a stigma to report involvements or accidents. I think it's a very open and welcoming and understanding community. A couple of bad apples out there, as always, but by and large, um, we at the Avalanche Center have approached um, these involvements with with an openness that allows people to talk to us. Um, and, and share their stories out there. It's we've been we've been uh, quite pleased with that here. That's great. Um, what makes you scratch your head these days with regard to forecasting, to backcountry skiing? Yeah, the the one thing that is I am scratching my my ever graying beard here. <laughs> has to do with with climate change kt and really we were talking a bit before uh how you know the the montana mountains and the wyoming mountains they uh, battled with a a rain crust early on with facets that developed and a good number of avalanches that were associated with that and with climate change, that's going to bring unusual weather, which in turn will bring unusual avalanches. And and that will be a struggle. That will be a challenge for us at the various avalanche centers out there. And I'll use this term, the fractionalization of expertise. And as Gary Klein and others have talked about, this, this uh, recognition prime decision-making, where if you're working at the Utah Avalanche Center for you know, 15, 20, 25 years, you see common patterns of avalanches. But with climate change, with unusual weather events, we're going to start to tweak um, 
these events. I mean, so these patterns are going to be outside the norm where we have developed, quote, this expertise. So with increasing rain events, you know, these um, perhaps more intense storm systems, um, these will take a certain nimbleness and openness of the forecasters working at the different avalanche centers. I wonder if we'll see something like that in like the next um, avalanche workshop or that's really interesting. I, I, I had thought about climate change with regard to, to forecasting, but not in exactly that way. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, what are your concerns for avalanche forecasting? Well, I, I feel that the concerns might be threefold, and I've hit upon two of them already. One is that we as a community, as backcountry communities, can't, quote, regulate or police ourselves. I mean, I, again, this idea of the social contract that I've used, the, the old Thomas Hobbes term from from uh, political philosophy. I mean, this this social contract where we give up just a little bit of our freedoms and rights for the for the the greater safety of all. I mean, this idea that we, by doing this, in fact, we are even more free. That we are free from harm. Um, so, you know, with a social contract, I think we can stave off again permanent closures, we can stave off a backcountry permit system, we can stave off, you know, maybe above all litigation. And, uh, um, you know, this, and then the second thing would be, um, you know, as I mentioned, with sort of a change in climate, and, and that's going to really have to draw upon an openness uh, to, to, new, uh, to new and unusual um, avalanches that we may have seen um, very little in our in our uh, own uh, avalanche forecast areas, and so uh, I think on the forecast earlier this year, I I wrote, "Hey, you know the coast range is called. They want their weather back." <laughs> you know? And I joked that we try to bring Mark Moore back out of retirement. He was a longtime forecaster up in the Northwest and to help us out with some of these coastal. Uh, weather patterns, we'll say. Um, and then, as always, you know, the budgets uh, within the federal government are subject to the whims and and priorities of those that are in charge. And and uh, we hope that, that avalanche forecast centers would be viewed not just uh, under uh, the, the, the domain of, of uh, land management agencies, but, but under public safety. Um, I think that's key. That's a key uh, um, take home for the avalanche centers moving forward. That uh, that's a key part of, of public safety. Again, I apologize. I didn't brief you on this one, but I thought of it midway through. <laughs> um, I was wondering if you would be willing to comment on what you think um, makes a good partner in the backcountry? Yeah. 
You know, finding a good partner for the backcountry is not so unlike finding a good partner for climbing at the crag or, or even more so in the alpine. You you really are, are putting your life in their hands, not just in a rescue sense, but in so much as you should be sharing the decision making and, and and sharing your your opinions of the snowpack. Um in particular, where you're planning to head, you need to share the same level of acceptable risk. I mean, if, if you're looking at finding a, a backcountry ski partner, you need to know what your own level of acceptable risk is and then find somebody that matches that. Now, I've railed against people second-guessing others for their level of acceptable risk, but it's it's a waste of time at best and inelegant uh, and insulting at worst because some people might view others that are living this unfulfilled life while others would view others as suicidal. It's a waste of time. Um, we all have our own level of acceptable risk. Now, I've, having said that, I feel that um, people... Um, maybe don't really know what their level of acceptable risk is. Mm-hmm. And it may change um, over time if you have children or if you've had a few close calls or this, that, and the other. I mean, these things might change. Um, but I think it takes some deep introspection to understand what your own level of acceptable risk is and then matching it with someone. Someone who's suicidal isn't going to match up very well that lives an unfulfilled life and and, and vice versa. So um, the fitness, really, it comes down to having a similar level of fitness, acceptable risk, and then general commitment to communication. Um, And communication is quite key. Now, your partner, Bo Fredland, we'll put him on the spot here. I found him to be a good partner because he's thoughtful and uh, and speaks only very little when he's out heading into the backcountry. And those things that he'll have to say, you want to lean in. You end up leaning in um, to hear what he has to say. And they're usually thoughtful, insightful comments about the snowpack, the weather, or the avalanche conditions. Yeah, I've found personally... For me, talking less and looking and listening more is something I try to do and something I look for in backcountry partners, and that may not be for everyone. Other people go out to socialize, to catch up with a friend. Um, But for me, I feel like I miss things when I talk too much, and that's just a personal observation. Um, Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Drew, for sitting down with us. I really appreciate it. <laughs> Thanks a lot, KT. It was a, it was a pleasure to, to uh, spend an hour with you here. Have a good winter. Thanks again for tuning in. Bonus points to any of you listeners who write and email me a haiku. I'll give you a cyber high five. Uh, if I had stickers, I would send one to you. And maybe uh, maybe we'll get some stickers going here soon. I also want to remind you that your donations make the future of the Powder 8 podcast possible. So please, if you can spare 
your latte or lunch or $5 in gas money, throw us a little love and help me keep this thing going. I hope you are all enjoying spring out there. It's my favorite time of year. So uh, have fun, be safe out there, and uh, we'll chat with you next time. Cheers. Thank you.